My name is Bill Garflink. I'm a senior advisor here at CSIS and uh, with a, the program of U.S. Leadership in Development. And we have a series called Careers in Development. And today it, it's uh, kind of special for us. We have the Director General of the Foreign Service. So if you have any questions about the Foreign Service, you're, you're, you can hear it right from the horse's mouth here. <laughs> But Linda has had a long career uh, in the State Department. Uh, she has spent the last four years as the U.S. Ambassador to Liberia. And before that, she was the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for the Africa Bureau and State. And she was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in PRM, Population, Refugee and Migration Affairs. And then she served all over the place in uh, Jamaica, the Gambia, Kenya, Pakistan, we met when you were in Geneva, so all over the place. And so now she's back as the Director General of the Foreign Service. And with that, it's my great pleasure to introduce Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield. Thank you, Bill. I, I have to tell you that uh, I had not even started my job when Bill hit me up to come and speak to you. I was still in transition, wasn't quite sure when I woke up each morning if I was still in Liberia or... Uh, someplace else, and I get this email from Bill saying, you know, congratulations on your new job, and by the way, I'm at CSIS, and I'd like to invite you over to come and speak to the students. And at the time, I couldn't accept any official engagements because I hadn't yet been confirmed by the Senate, and I told him that as soon as I was confirmed, I would look forward to coming over, and today, here I am. I've been on the job um, now for exactly two months, and two weeks, uh, but I'm not counting. Uh, I'm enjoying it. Uh, again, let me um, tell you how delighted I'm here uh, to be here with you and to have the opportunity to meet with all of you. Uh, I think I, it goes without saying that this is really an opportune time to contemplate careers in diplomacy and in development. Uh, and I hope that is why most of you are here today. Uh, President Obama and Secretary Clinton and Administrator Shah are committed to making diplomacy and development full partners in our foreign policy, along with defense. The Secretary has said that today, as the United States and the world face ongoing wars and regional conflicts, the global economic crisis and terrorism, we must use all of the tools at our disposal, diplomatic, economic, military, political, legal, and cultural. This is the essence of what Secretary Clinton refers to as smart power. Smart power requires smart people. And I know there are a lot of smart people in this room today. So these are the kinds of people that we're hope, hoping to motivate and encourage to consider the Foreign Service uh, or USAID, Foreign Service, USAID domestically, State Department domestically to consider careers working on foreign policy and development. And that is what I understand from Bill is your interest today. I've worked over many years very closely with USAID at my missions overseas, and I have very much appreciated the work being done by those colleagues who work to reduce poverty, provide disaster relief, and contribute to sustainable development. And I believe that development, if done right, is crucial to solving the complex problems of the, uh, of the world today. Um, I can tell you that in order to do this, it is really important as we do our work overseas that we work as a unified mission, a unified team. And I'd like to talk a little bit about my experience uh, as the U.S. ambassador in Liberia working very closely with, uh, with USAID. 
I was very honored uh, several uh, months ago before I left Liberia to hear that the Secretary of State was over visiting at a town hall meeting at USAID, and she used Liberia as an example of how well USAID and the embassy worked together and that we were the example of how it should be done everywhere. And so I started getting these emails, what are you doing? How are you doing it? And I had to think about it because it was not a court, you know, a strategic plan that I came in with. It was an approach that was how I do business. And that is that to succeed at any job, one person can't do it. It requires a team effort. And the team is everybody who's part of it, whether it's the gardeners or is your USAID director or your deputy chief of mission. And that was the approach when, when I arrived in Liberia with one goal that I wanted everybody to understand and to buy into, and if they didn't buy into it, to try to convince me of other goals that we might be achieving. My one goal, uh, taking from my letter of instruction from the president, was to help Liberia succeed. And I was always very clear, it is not about helping the president succeed. It is about helping the people of Liberia succeed, working with the president, working with the government, working with the people to help the people of Liberia succeed after 15 years of war. Everybody bought into that goal. AID's work on poverty reduction, on providing health care, improving education was all about helping the people and the government of Liberia succeed. Our political reporting was about reporting on efforts to help the people in the government of Liberia succeed. Our work in helping them get through what could have been a very difficult election was about helping the people and the government of Liberia succeed. So we were able to do the primary goal of the USAID director, which was have impact, and the primary goal that I had, which was to normalize our relationship with, uh, with Liberia. On the whole issue of impact, when the AID director arrived at post, I told her that we had these signs that were all over the country. You could drive, AID was very good at this bill. You could drive all over Liberia in the most remote areas, in the bush, and you would see a sign that said, gift from the people of the United States of America to the people of Liberia. Uh, a gift of US aid from the people of Liberia. And you couldn't see what, the sign, what was behind the sign. Sometimes it was a broken down building. Sometimes it was just in the bush. And my uh, uh, request to the USAID director was, find out what's behind those signs because it's kind of embarrassing to see a sign in the middle of the bush with giving credit and recognition to the US government and we can't see what we are doing. So the AID director hired someone to go out and see what was behind the signs. And sometimes what was behind the signs was goodwill. It was a reflection of what the US government had done to provide for the people of Liberia, but it was gone. Nobody could tell us what was there or it was broken. Uh, and occasionally, the, what was there was still there. But what I wanted was long-term impact. I did not want signs that said we'd given a gift and the gift had ended. It'd be like giving a hungry person a sandwich. 
uh, as you all have provided for me today. And you eat the sandwich, and it's gone. There's no evidence that you gave me anything to alleviate my hunger. Uh, I wanted evidence of what we had done to accomplish those goals. What had happened in the initial years after the war in Liberia was that we had this shotgun approach that was very appropriate of making sure that the benefits of peace touched everybody. Uh, we wanted people to to know that they were in a country at peace. So we you know, piled everything we could pile into the shotgun and shot it out, and it, uh, everybody got a little piece of it. Uh, we had now, at that point, moved to the uh, place where we needed to have more long-term impact, that if we were providing education, it was education that was going to make a difference over the long term, health care that was going to make a difference over, over the long term, poverty alleviation with a long-term impact, infrastructure development with a long-term impact, and not the feel-good, uh, it's the end of the war kind, kind of thing. And so we were able to bring our team together, uh, defense and development and diplomacy, and have that long-term impact and, and work on trying to normalize our relationship with the, with the people of Liberia. And the fact that we were recognized by the Secretary as being a, a success story for how USAID and the State Department can work together in the pursuit of the goals and missions of, of the U.S. government was uh, quite, uh, it was very rewarding for me. I like to use these opportunities uh, when I'm invited to such programs as, as this as occasions for recruitment. Uh, so if those, if, if there are some of you who are out here who are interested in serving on the front lines anywhere in the world as a member of the State Department, as Bill said, I'm the person to talk to. Now, I may not be able to give you all the details, but I'll try to give you some of the details of what, uh, what this entails, and I'll try to answer your questions. If I can't answer your questions today, I'll get back to, to you with the answers. But let me tell you, we are looking for bright uh, people like you. Some of you are young. There are a few of you who look a little bit older in the room. Nobody as old as Bill and I, but uh, uh, we even take the, the old timers as well, as long as you can give us five, five years of service. Uh, but we are looking for people who care about ec the economic well-being and the future of the United States and who want to represent the United States uh, overseas. Uh, we need a, a foreign service that reflects uh, U.S. diversity, we need a foreign service that reflects U.S. goodwill and people who are prepared to go out there and do uh, the work that we do. Let me talk a little bit about State Department staffing. Um, and I know you're also interested in aid. Bill can probably answer most of the questions about USAID, but uh, uh, let me talk about staffing a, a bit, and I'll talk a bit about how we are staffing for the future. There are two ways uh, for you to join the State Department. You can come in as a civil service employee, you're stationed in Washington, or you can come in as a foreign service employee and you commit to serving uh, much of your career overseas. And we have something called worldwide availability, that if you join the foreign service, you have to be worldwide available. We're a little bit more flexible on worldwide availability than we were when I first came in the foreign service 30 years ago where you really did have to have a class one medical clearance when you came in, and you had to be prepared and willing to serve any place in the world, uh, even without 
without your your family members. We are, as, as I mentioned, we're a bit more flexible on, on the medical clearances now than, than we were in the past. And we try to be accommodating to meet uh, people's family needs to the extent that it does not uh, compromise our ability to assign people overseas. We have over 10,000 civil service employees headquartered primarily here in Washington who are involved in virtually every area of the department from human rights to narcotics control to trade to environment to human resources. There are also um, the domestic counterparts to our consular officers overseas. They issue passports. They um, uh, assist U.S. citizens um, who, who have family members who are having issues overseas. And they continue to work on all the issues that our counterparts overseas are working on. Uh, for the civil service, our hiring decisions are based on education and relevant work experience. The Foreign Service is very unique. For the civil service, you go on to USA jobs and you compete with the, with the entire world. For the Foreign Service, again, you're required to represent, represent the United States all around the world and respond to the needs of American citizens in those countries. We have two categories of foreign service officers, uh, foreign service employees, uh, those who are known as generalists, and then those who are specialists. There are about 14,000 officers and specialists who are our first line of defense in a complex and often dangerous world. Uh, generalists are commissioned officers. They're in five areas of expertise known, known as career tracks, political, economic, public diplomacy, consular and management. Um, all candidates uh, must be at least 20 years of age or older, although we seem to be uh, attracting much older. I think the average age now for foreign service officers coming in is about 29. I was 29 uh, when I came in into the foreign service. Uh, we have diplomats and residents who are based all, all over the world. I mean, sorry, all over the United States. We have about 16 of them. And there's one in this region, Daphne Titus, I hope. You all have had the opportunity to meet Daphne, and uh, she's based out of Howard University, but her responsibilities are for the entire uh, Washington area. Uh, foreign service specialists tend to be more experts in, in the field. We have information management, human resources, financial management people, facilities, uh, maintenance people. We have re um, uh, security, regional security Officers are also among our specialists. These are people who do not have to take the Foreign Service exam. Generalists have to take the exam. Everyone has to uh, do the oral exam to come into the Foreign Service, and I think you, you all probably know a, a bit about that process. Um, we, we like to, to make sure that people who are coming in the Foreign Service know that Foreign Service is not just a career. It's not a job. Uh, it really is a way of life, and it offers very unique rewards and opportunities and sometimes hardships. It is a career, it's a lifestyle that is in continual motion and absolutely unpredictable. Uh, we talk about the different stresses of life. The Foreign Service has all those stresses. Uh, you are required to move every two to three years. You're changing jobs every two to three years. You're changing bosses every two to three three years. You're in constant motion uh, as you move into new jobs, new houses, new countries. Uh, and the Foreign Service, for those of you who are married, is also 
It also involves your family. So your children are constantly changing schools. Your spouses are constantly changing jobs if your spouse does not happen to be in, in the Foreign Service. Um, in the Foreign Service, you're always learning new job skills, new languages, uh, learning about the work uh, and the cultures of the places that you may be working in. And we're repeatedly reacting in the Foreign Service to policy developments and shifts, both foreign and domestic. Uh, presidents, secretaries of states, Congress uh, will change as, uh, as do our policy priorities. And the world changes. Uh, if you just look at what happened during the Arab Spring, this is something that required a complete shift in how uh, we were doing business. Uh, but for me personally, I can tell you I know of no more rewarding uh, career uh, than the Foreign Service. I have loved every minute of it. It has not always been uh, perfect uh, for, for my uh, career aspirations, for my lifestyle, but it has always been an interesting career. But as I like to tell young people when I, um, when I speak to them about the Foreign Service, um, even if you're in a job you hate, with a boss you can't stand, or your boss can't stand you, uh, in somewhere between 12 months and 24 months, one of you will leave. Um, so, you know, you, you can kind of grit and bear it. Um, and you're going to move on and you'll have new challenges. And it's also a job that I like to tell people that you can reinvent yourself. Sometimes you just have a bad year. You come into a post. Your approach is wrong. Um, you didn't make that first good impression that we all are told that we have to make when you walk into the room. And so you just can't get it right. But in two years, you leave and you can reinvent yourself and try to get it right the next time around. Uh, they talk about corridor reputation, but corridor reputations are fixable. Uh, and if you develop that corridor reputation, yeah, two or three years, you can fix it and turn yourself around. So again, it's one of those jobs that I think provides you with that flexibility to uh, make yourself into a newer, better uh, employee or person or whatever you want to present yourself as. You can do that in, in the Foreign Service. But most importantly, I would say that you have the opportunity to do meaningful work around the world. You're promoting global stability. You're protecting American citizens abroad. You're opening up markets. And you're strengthening democracy and creating jobs. In the case of Liberia, uh, I know that with my team in Liberia, we got Liberia through tough elections that had we not been there, they may not have been able to accomplish. Because we took it seriously, we got our people out, state, USAID, DOD, Peace Corps, everyone, to, to monitor and observe the election. So that when the results of the election came out, we could say without a doubt that Liberia had a free and fair election. And it didn't matter to us. Uh, truthfully, who won the election. I think the right person won the election, but had the opposition won the election in a free and fair process, we were going to be there for them as, as well. And that was truly uh, rewarding. Uh, one of the um, 
comments that I got from the newspapers and the people of Liberia was they thanked the U.S. government and me personally that they did not have to run again because we stood by them during these elections. These are uh, very rewarding um, kinds of things to happen in your career that you just don't see when you're working in Washington, D.C. You don't get that feeling of contentment and the feeling of accomplishment um, that you get when you're, you go overseas and you see the results of your work every day. And I think Bill can um, agree with me, having worked in DRC and seen some of the success uh, happen there. Uh, for those of you who are interested, uh, we have a number of student programs. I don't know if you all are at that point in your careers, uh, but we do have student programs, uh, a lot of very popular internship programs, uh, which provide uh, opportunities for young people to spend the semester or summer working in D.C. or at a U.S. embassy, a consulate abroad. Some are paid, some are unpaid. Sometimes people come paid by their universities or by a scholarship program. Uh, you can go on our website at careers.state.gov, student programs, and look at the various opportunities for internships with uh, the Department of State. And uh, people have amazing uh, uh, opportunities when they do those internships. I had an intern work with me in Liberia, first intern we'd had in 15 years, because we don't send interns to countries that are in conflict. And so we were out of conflict, and I asked for an intern, but I didn't uh, coordinate with my team and let my team know that I wanted an intern, but I talked to Washington about the intern. And I was on leave, and Washington sent an email to, um, to the Post saying, uh, we have this intern for Monrovia. And they went back and said, we don't want an intern. We don't have a housing for an intern. Uh, so thank you very much. Send the intern somewhere else. Now, they weren't that rude. Um, and the people in Washington went, oh, my God. And they put me on an email, and um, I saw it on my BlackBerry. I think you might want to talk to the ambassador before you say no to this intern, because she said she wants an intern. And we found her one. Uh, so they came back, not wanting to back down, saying, but we don't have any housing. And I said, well, guess what? The intern can stay with me. I think that she is probably the only intern that's ever gone to a post and lived with the ambassador for four months um, and be on duty and on call 24-7 because every time I'd get the call at 9 or 10 o'clock at night saying, uh, can you come over to the president's house, I'd go downstairs and work at Lauren and say, I got a call to go to the president's house. Come on, let's go. And uh, I, I think she had an internship experience that no other intern will, will ever have. And I hope that if uh, some of you decide to go that route, that you end up with an ambassador who will let you stay in her houses and take you to uh, meetings and parties and other things at uh, 10 o'clock at, at night. But I think it was an experience that was uh, worthwhile for her. Uh, I do like to tell people, and I told this to Peace Corps last week, that one of the best places for training for the Foreign Service is Peace Corps, because if you can get through two years of Peace Corps, you can get through 20 years of the Foreign Service. Uh, and I never had the opportunity to do Peace Corps. Bill just told me he didn't do Peace Corps. Um, but many of our Foreign Service officers and USAID officers started out overseas in, in Peace Corps, and it's outstanding and excellent training, and it's something, if there's anything I regret in my life, that's that I never had the opportunity uh, to have that Peace Corps experience that so many of my colleagues have, have had. 
Uh, as we move forward, and, and my job as the Director General of the Foreign Service, uh, we have a number of priorities that we are focused on right now. Our highest priority is staffing uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Pakistan. So my office is focused on that uh, very, very um, keenly to make sure that we get the volunteers we need to staff those three critical, to, uh, critical posts for us. It's a high priority of the president, and it's the uh, highest priority of the secretary. So we're focused on getting people uh, interested in those assignments. We provide a number of incentives. First two officers are not sent to those posts. You have to at least be tenured to get, go to AIP, as we refer to it. But that's our highest priority. Uh, second uh, is to ensure that the people we bring in the Foreign Service have the skills and the uh, innovation that we want to see in the Foreign Service and that it is, is a Foreign Service that represents the face of America. We want a Foreign Service that reflects not only our, our ethnic diversity, we want a Foreign Service that reflects our regional diversity. So we're working very, very hard to go out to the deepest recesses of the United States uh, to encourage people who might not have considered the Foreign Service as a career to look at the Foreign Service as a career. And then thirdly, I would add to, to our list of priorities, and there are many, these are just some of them, is to ensure that we provide the support that is needed for our Foreign Service families uh, overseas uh, to provide job opportunities for, uh, for family members and to make sure that we provide for the wherewithal of, of all of our Foreign Service people who are uh, making the tough decisions to represent the United States overseas. I think I will end there, and I think you will be better served if you ask me the questions you want to know the answers to instead of me rattling on with everything I think you ought to know. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. Well, I, let me just ask one, one question, and it's sort of focused a little bit on, on AID and the relationship with the State Department. And, and I think if you go back a bunch of years, it always seemed to me that there were very strict, or not strict, but very definite silos of what the folks from the State Department did diplomacy. You had some refugee affairs activities. Then you had disaster assistance and AID. And everybody kind of, it, it was a very s separated uh, kind of system. And it seems like over the years, particularly since Afghanistan and Iraq and some other uh, instances that has blurred a lot and and you have to be able to do a little bit of everything in the business now if you just comment uh, a bit on that uh, thank you bill that's that's an excellent question I think we have uh, come to understand that we can't operate in silos we can't have the Defense Department doing its thing in a country and AID doing its thing, and the State Department doing its thing, and nobody coming together to make sure that what we're all doing makes sense. So uh, through the uh, quadrennial, I have a problem saying that word for some reason, uh, the Secretary's QDDR, uh, her, she has argued that we need to bring those three elements of U.S. presence overseas together diplomacy, defense, and, and development, and put the ambassador uh, as CEO in charge of all three elements overseas. And that is that ensures that our policies are coherent, our policies make sense. 
just to, to give you uh, an example, again, from Liberia, which is my uh, uh, most recent point of reference, uh, when we worked on humanitarian development, we had USAID doing humanitarian, which is part of their uh, um, responsibility. We had DOD doing humanitarian. And then we had State Department through PRM, the Office of Population, Refugees, and Migration, doing humanitarian. Uh, we needed to make sure that our efforts were being coordinated, that as we worked to deal with refugees in, who were coming across the border from Cote d'Ivoire into Liberia, and our DOD colleagues were out there doing their civil um, civic uh, responsibilities, and PRM was sending people from outside uh, to come in to do their work, and AID, in fact, was sending people from AFTA that they were coordinated, that we weren't going to one refugee camp doing one thing and another refugee camp doing another thing, but we had a coordinated U.S. Uh, approach. So we set up this humanitarian uh, committee inside the embassy and put the humanitarian people around the table together so that we could make sure that we complemented each other's efforts and didn't cross each other uh, in ways that were not beneficial uh, to, to the U.S. government. And I think that has uh, really made a huge difference. I was also um, privileged in Liberia to take a USAID person who was a uh, EXO, executive office officer, and have that person as, as my management officer for the entire embassy. And what he brought to the table was something that no... State Department management officer could bring to the table. He brought an understanding of how USAID worked and how we might work better together so that we didn't, um, we, we, we did a better job of managing US taxpayers' dollars. Did we need to have two separate motor pools? Did we have to have two separate housing pools? How he could bring the USAID management tools into uh, play so that the State Department could do a better job of managing its operations as well. And I think we were uh, much more successful, again, than other posts. We built a new embassy, and we actually combined people together. There's an AID public affairs person and a State Department public affairs person, and they backed each other up. They should be sitting next door to each other so that when they needed to back each other up, they could do it and understand what each other's main job responsibilities were when they were backing each other up. And so that I think it's a good thing that those uh, silos are being open. I think it's, it's made for much more flexibility. But it's been tough because uh, AID has its way of doing business. State Department has its way of doing business. And trying to bring them into uh, under the same umbrella was not always uh, easy. And it's still a work in progress. And answer your question? Yes. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Now let's open it up. And I, I assume... There are a few questions around the room, so yes, please. Hello, uh, good evening or good afternoon. Um, my name is Sugar Stallings, and uh, it's an honor to hear you speak and um, talk. I'm actually uh, from Africa. I'm Ethiopian and Trinidadian. I came here with a dual citizenship. Um, and I just wanted to ask, what are some of the traits that a person uh, applying, because I'm sure there's thousands and thousands of uh, applicants applying for this position, should bring to the table um, and things that will kind of immerse them to be one of the top uh, selectors uh, in this process. Thank you. 
Uh, the Foreign Service is, as, as I mentioned earlier, is very unique because you have to take a, an exam to come into the Foreign Service. And we have about 22,000 people a year taking that exam, and, and uh, a large percentage of the people passing the exam. Uh, sometimes they're not always the right people uh, that we're looking for. Uh, so there's another level of, of reviewing uh, the people who pass the exam, and that's through an oral exam and a, a, a paper review of their qualifications um, by our um, BECs. What do we call BECs? It's our Board of Examiners. Uh, so we, we go through that process of looking at people who we think are versatile, who are flexible, who are innovative, and who are able to live and work overseas in a different culture with an understanding uh, of that culture. And we get it right most of the time, but we don't get it right all the time. I mean, occasionally, the ones that we don't get right in up on my desk with a, with a letter of reprimand or a letter of, of separation, uh, which has been one of the most difficult things I, I've had to do in the two and a half months that I've been in this job. But in most cases, we, we do get it right in terms of the people that we, we select for, for the Foreign Service. My name is Alejandra Santillan. Um, I'm actually studying development in grad school right now. And my question has touches a bit on the first question, um, which is this um, relationship between USAID and state. And I'm just curious, I've heard so many perspectives from USAID people living here in DC and not that many from state about not so much the management side that could be probably easily joined, but more like the objectives, development being more long-term and like diplomacy being more short-term in its view. I actually would totally disagree with that last statement. Diplomacy is long-term, and you can't do development if the diplomacy fails. If your diplomacy is short-term, uh, then your development will not succeed. Uh, and I think we've seen the examples where the diplomacy has failed. And when diplomacy fails, you're not doing development. You are doing humanitarian. And it is a an, an disaster response. And that is much, much more uh, complicated. I think we are coming to understand how important it is to have these two working side by side. Uh, and again, I hate to keep harping on Liberia, but it's my uh, immediate frame of reference. When we did the election in Liberia, it was the AID democracy and governance team that planned all of our election response. They were front and center in planning the election res response, but working hand in hand with uh, the political section who were doing the diplomacy. Uh, and again, I just think they really do go hand in hand. And I think it's a real failure if our AID colleagues think that diplomacy is short term. Uh, because if they do think that, then they're not doing development. If I can just add a, a comment. I was hoping you would. <laughs> Coming from the, from the AID side of things, but also uh, spending so, uh, some time on the State Department yeah. side as well. I think that's an old-fashioned view that was held a long time ago, that there is diplomacy, and then there's another area that's called development, and they, they operate in separate tracks. And that just doesn't make any sense, and that's simply not true. But I think that was a, a deeply held view 
from some of the old farts in AID like, like me. And fortunately, that's changing now. And, and that's I, why we, we made him join the Foreign Service <laughs> as an ambassador so we can change his mind. So, so it's a very different attitude now. And, and as Linda says, this is, and particularly now, with, you've got diplomacy, defense, uh, and development. And, and it's got to be with one focus and one goal in mind and not separate tracks. So I, unfortunately, that idea is still around with some folks. But I, I think it's misguided. And I think you'll find fewer and fewer development specialists who would buy that now. Uh, my name is Garrett Langdon. I'm an intern here in the Energy and National Security Department. Um, my question is, uh, you know, you spoke a lot about the Foreign Services as a career. Uh, some of us maybe might be interested in doing it for, for five, ten years and maybe moving back to the private sector. Is that something that's common or, or is that kind of forbidden? <laughs> it is something that we're seeing more and more of that has us very concerned. Uh, because, again, I'm not an old fart. <laughs> but old farts like an Bill. Person, an experience. <laughs> when, when we came into the Foreign Service, we saw this at, as minimum a 20-year career. Minimum a 20-year career. Uh, we invest a tremendous amount in training new, newly hired Foreign Service officers. Uh, I've seen figures as high as $200,000 to train to train our officers, particularly those who come in to special, come in through uh, the scholarship programs where we're paying actually for their graduate programs and spend $100,000 on, on their graduate programs. And if they only give us five years, we're not getting our money's worth. So when I meet with our new A100, our new recruits, I always say, this is not a five-year career. I hope this is not a five-year career. Uh, we do see it as a way of life, and we want to uh, attract people who see this as a long-term career. As a Foreign Service officer, you carry your rank in person. So you come in as a certain grade, and you get promoted personally. It's not the job you're in. Someone said to me when I got to be DG, you got a promotion, uh, so you're making more money. I carry my rank. So I didn't get a promotion, even though the DG job is, is a much higher job than, than being an ambassador. Uh, so it's competitive. You're working for these promotions. If you pull out of it in five years and go back to do something else, it'll be a line on your resume that may be helpful to you. But a bigger line on your resume is to say that you were um, a career foreign service officer, you were an ambassador. Uh, and uh, I just think for us, although we're not turning people down who say they're here only coming in for five years, we're hoping that when you come in, you really see it as a career that you want to uh, commit to. I think uh, in the Foreign Service, we, we want to see people be flexible and move. Uh, there are people who have certain expertise who are not in the Foreign Service who stay for the long term. But I do think there is the issue that if you stay in a country too long, uh, you, you kind of forget what you're there for. Uh, your knowledge of the country gets you to the point, if you're there to represent the U.S. government, uh, where you become a, somewhat jaded. I think that happened to me in Liberia. Uh, normally, ambassadors stay three years. I knew so much about Liberia. I, I knew Liberia before I went to Liberia because I had lived there and worked there uh, in, in a previous life. But as ambassador, 
uh, at the end of three years, I had pretty much accomplished everything I needed to accomplish. And by that fourth year, you know, I, I was into all kinds of stuff that just was, I, you know, I just think it, it was time for new blood, a new way of thinking. Uh, the people at the embassy need someone to motivate them. You, can, you, you need that vision. So my vision had been accomplished. And I hadn't even gotten to the point of thinking about a new, a new vision. Uh, but I know that a new ambassador going out there would go in with a new approach, a new vision, and that's important. And that's why we rotate people. Uh, but we have our long-term contractors. Uh, AID tends to keep their people longer at post, uh, uh, sometimes four years. Uh, and we can always extend for a third or fourth year if, if it's approved. But you want to have that constant flow in and flow out. Hi, my name is Jill. I'm also an intern at CSIS. Um, thank you so much for speaking to us today, Ambassador. It's really nice to actually um, see women Foreign Service officers come and speak. Um, my question was, uh, you talked about the six tracks in terms of the generalists, and I've talked to a couple of Foreign Service officers in terms of how they chose their track, but I was wondering, um, how did you personally choose your track, if you don't mind sharing? Well, when you, when you take the uh, exam, they ask you what you're interested in, but they also look at your background and your experience. And so I ended up being assigned because I scored higher as a political officer. Uh, truthfully, uh, when I came in, I didn't want to be a political officer. I, you know, I thought political officers spent too much time uh, in the office and not really getting to know people. And I, I think that I, I was wrong on that. Uh, but I redirected my career to almost exclusively humanitarian that got me out of the office, got me dealing with people every day, but also doing the political reporting that was necessary to get my promotions as a political officer. Uh, I have a very unusual career in the Foreign Service. I did five assignments dealing with refugee and uh, humanitarian issues, again, how I got to know Bill. Uh, and working very closely with uh, with my AID colleagues, and I think it it helped me understand AID better because I was working so closely with them. I learned how to do uh, assessments of a refugee camp from an AID OFDA person. Uh, I would do all of my traveling with USAID, uh, but I got out uh, quite uh, a bit more than some of my colleagues in in the embassy. And had we had a humanitarian track, I probably would have chosen that. Um, you mentioned working with um, with DOD, with USAID, and with um, the and obviously the Department of State working with them. What about working with some of the issues um, normally associated with Treasury? I know um, State recently hired its first chief economist, uh, Heidi Krebo Redeker, and the uh, President or sorry Secretary Clinton's uh, emphasis on economic statecraft at, at State has really been up recently. So how is that going to be reflected uh, moving forward? I think uh, the Secretary's appointment of the economic advisor uh, recognized the importance that economics play, but when I was in Monrovia again, we had a Treasury advisor, and I've been in a number of embassies where we've had Treasury advisors. Uh, it was Treasury Department that helped us work through Liberia getting uh, dealing with its debt issues. It helped Liberia deal with a lot of the tax issues. So I was regularly working with uh, with Treasury, and I think that happens in a lot of a lot of our embassies. Uh, we have economic officers. Uh, 
Uh, I was privileged to have two very, very good uh, economic officers who knew the people in Treasury, knew the people in Commerce, knew the people in USTR and OPEC and other places and were able to bring those people into play as we developed our economic policy toward the uh, Liberian government. So again, I think it's key. Um, they're not always present overseas, uh, and some ambassadors don't always know that we can request them. Uh, if you got a good economic officer, your economic officers will come in and say, Ambassador, let's go to Treasury and see if they can send us an expert. So we had a number of experts come in two, three months at a time who helped us. I mean, in the Foreign Service, we look for generalists. You specialize when you get in. Uh, so I came in as a generalist. I'd never done humanitarian work. I took an assignment as a refugee officer in Washington, fell in love with the work, took a second assignment, a third and a fourth, and then eventually a, a fifth assignment as a deputy assistant secretary. So uh, you specialize, uh, you come in with, with, with uh, specialized skills uh, that you have acquired, but you are a generalist until you find a way to specialize in the foreign service. I think AID will bring you in as uh, uh, a uh, as as with your specializations. The State Department does not. Um, uh, you might have addressed this a little bit before, but um, what sort of gets a candidate noticed by the State Department, whether it's for an internship or the on the test on the personal narratives? I mean, what 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 almost stands out more, or do you see any specific trends of new officers lately? I don't know that I know the answer to to that question. I think it's all um, all of it has uh, some important contribution to how an officer is uh, is seen and how they are scored on the various components of, of the scoring process that takes place. And then you go on a register, and you're competing with other people on the register based on uh, the needs and requirements of, of the Foreign Service. So you may, uh, you may be selected because you're on the economic register, and the economic register is, has more people. Or you know, if a lot of people look at coming in on the management register, uh, because that tends not to ever have uh, enough people, so they ask to be management officers, knowing in their heart of hearts that they want to be an economic officer or a uh, uh, or a political officer. So I don't advise that because then you end up in jobs that you don't uh, you don't enjoy. Um, but it really is uh, a combination of, of things. I think once you're in the Foreign Service, there are a lot of skills that will make an officer successful. Most important, in my view, is having really good interpersonal skills and good uh, communication skills. Uh, I mean, we, we have a whole list of uh, precepts for what makes a good officer, but I find those who fail are those who, who lack interpersonal and communication skills. I'll just ask, ask a quick question. I'm Johanna Nesseth with CSIS. The, this, the Foreign Service has made a huge number of changes over the years. And I'm wondering, as you look forward, how do you see shifting or thinking about the challenge of dual career families and trying to make that all work? Because that seems to be one of the big challenges that you face. It is a huge challenge. Uh, when uh, I came in the Foreign Service 30 years ago and just a few years before, we did not have a lot of professional women in the Foreign Service. 
uh, and uh, spouses gave up their, the female spouses gave up their careers. Uh, until 1980, women who came in the Foreign Service could not be married, and if they got married, they had to resign from, from the Foreign Service. That was just 1980. Uh, so we have uh, made a huge shift since that time. Uh, there's an organization in the State Department that's called the Work-Life Balance Organization. We, uh, they put tremendous pressure on us on a daily basis to make sure that we look at those issues that uh, are, are family-related. We have done quite a bit over the years to find job opportunities for spouses uh, and partners who are accompanying officers overseas, particularly uh, looking at ways to to bring them into the embassy. We have something called the, uh, um, we use so many acronyms, sometimes I don't remember what they are, but this one is the EPAP. It's a professional program for spouses. And uh, we've created about 160 positions like that where spouses are going into jobs that would normally be staffed by an officer, and we don't have officers who are available to take those jobs, and we uh, qualify, pre-qualify uh, spouses to take those those positions. Uh, my principal deputy assistant secretary tells the story that both he and his wife were teachers, and they came into the Foreign Service. Uh, he's had a successful career in the Foreign Service. Uh, she has to start over from scratch every two to three years, every time they move. So she goes into a new post, and she's the new teacher on the block uh, every every few years for the past 30 years. Uh, so those are some things that have been very, very uh, difficult. Uh, I tell the story when I came into the Foreign Service. Um, uh, I was um, serving in Jamaica. My husband, who was in the Foreign Service, was uh, in Washington. Uh, we were expecting. I didn't have any leave uh, because I'd just come into the Foreign Service. And so, well, sorry. Uh, we, um, uh, we don't give leave without pay with to untenured junior officers. And I said, I know that's the policy, but you got an untenured junior officer who's going to have a baby in about seven months, and I'm going to have to have leave. And the policy would not, I mean, they couldn't even find their way around the policy. And uh, I finally made an appointment to go and see the Director General of the Foreign Service, who actually found a way around the policy. And my staff now are very upset at me because I will see officers who want to see me. And I said, the reason I do that is because I was an untenured junior officer and I asked for an appointment with the director general and she saw me and she solved my problem. Uh, so I will see every single person I can see because of that. But again, it's, uh, it's still a work in progress. Uh, it still requires a lot of flexibility. It requires people to make a lot of compromises. I always say to uh, particularly young women, there's no such thing as making the bacon and bringing, uh, bringing home the bacon and making the bacon too. You might, you might make the bacon, but somebody else is going to have to cook it because you're not going to have time if you're making the bacon to cook the bacon. So you either hire somebody to do it or your spouse or partner does it for you. Uh, so it's not, it's not the old uh, scene that we had as, as women. You make compromises and you're never 100% good at any of it. Uh, if you're 100% good at your job, then you're not 100% good uh, on the other side taking care of your family. And if you're giving your family 100%, then you're not giving your job 100%. There's just no such thing. So you make compromises and you, you do this balancing act. 
on a regular basis to figure out what is the important thing for you to be focused on today or tomorrow. And if you're lucky, you have a spouse who's there to back you up to bring in the rest of it so that your family gets the 100%. Any final comment or question? Join me in thanking. Thank you. Thank you.